Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Munch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined today by Peter Suderman and Chris Orr, uh, who is filling in for Alyssa on her maternity leave. Chris, Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, Chris Cuomo has officially been canned by CNN after it was revealed uh, that he was funneling his brother, embattled former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, information about his accusers. Uh, Here's CNN's statement, quote, Chris Cuomo was suspended earlier this week pending further evaluation of new information that came to light about his involvement with his brother's defense. We retained a respected law firm to conduct the review and have terminated him effective immediately. While in the process of review, additional information has come to light. Despite the termination, uh, we will investigate as appropriate, end quote. Apparently, those new uh, allegations involve sexual harassment, a running theme in the Cuomo family. Um, And let's be clear, it's good that CNN has finally done this, but it's absolutely bonkers that it took so long to get him off the air. Uh, I I don't understand how anyone at the network, to say nothing of the media and the media watchdogs more generally, uh, thought it was even remotely appropriate for Chris Cuomo to have a show on CNN in which he regularly interviewed his own brother about the topics of the day. Uh, The fact that Chris Cuomo was covering for Andrew Cuomo while New York was getting decimated by COVID is a disgrace. Uh, The whole the, the the fact that he was funneling him information about his accusers is uh, a borderline criminal. And the whole thing is deeply shameful. Shame, shame, shame. Chris, uh, what on earth took so long for someone somewhere to finally put this nonsense to an end? I mean, this this was a travesty from the start. And, and it would have been a travesty if, you know, even if he hadn't been funneling information to his brother about accusers, which is which is completely beyond the pale. I mean, as you said, borderline criminal. Um I mean, I I think the problem here, and we see it all the time and we see it everywhere, is networks once considered news a duty, and now they consider news a product. And they consider it a product that they want to have the maximal audience for. And I am certain, I don't actually know the numbers, of course, but I'm certain that CNN had Chris Cuomo interviewing his brother on a regular basis because viewers liked it, because viewers enjoyed it. They thought it was fun. It had a little bit of a free song. And, you know, and, and honestly, you know, this is a particularly egregious case. I mean, because it's just such an obvious conflict of interest, but you kind of see it everywhere. I mean, CNN paid Rick Santorum to lie on television for years. And they knew he was lying. I mean, that was his whole point. But again, it was an audience thing. They felt they needed to have somebody who was an employee of CNN who would defend Donald Trump, you know, not just, I mean, obviously it's fine for CNN to have surrogates and campaign spokespeople and all of that kind of thing. And if they lie, then they lie, that's fine. They're not CNN employees. But that's what Rick Santorum was doing, and he was doing it on CNN's dime, and CNN knew perfectly well that, I don't know, 60% of what he said, 80% of what he said was a lie, and they were paying him to lie to the American people because they felt they needed to to have an audience share of Trump voters. I mean, it's just, you, you see it everywhere. It, it completely deforms the news. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's, I, I, I think there's a difference between having a partisan flack on hand in a, like, Hannity and Combs situation where, you know, people are arguing about the, 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 the issues of the day than there is to having, like, an actual legit conflict of interest of this. I mean, it's, it's, I, 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 again, I, the, 
the Andrew Cuomo phenomenon drove me totally bonkers at the beginning of COVID. The the him getting a, this book about defeating COVID, and you know when when his state was one of the worst was was one of the worst handled it as badly as anybody else had. Um, and, and like the 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 most shameful part of all of this again was like him showing up on CNN constantly to like get cover for this from his brother. I just I I can't I can't understand how anybody there uh, thought this was above board. Peter, uh, I, 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 I uh, am at a loss here. What, what, what make you of, of this whole situation? Well, it's really tough times for Cuomosexuals, I think. <laughs> um, and I, I just, I, I think it's sad. Keeping them in your thoughts that, and prayers. Yeah, just, it's, it's a rough time for them, I, I, I feel. No, I, so I think, I think I, I agree with, with a bunch of what Chris said here. Um, uh, I, I do think that, there is now like a, a weird situation with with cable news, um, whether it's Fox or CNN or MSNBC. And it's this is true of some shows, not all true, more true of some shows. Right. There's a there's I, so I don't I'm not, I don't want to I don't want to say this is not meant to uh, to apply equally to every single hour of uh, of cable news programming. But it is true across the major cable news networks that they have all become a kind of news entertainment with where the entertainment is more important than the news. And I think that that's fine, except that you can't pretend then that what you are primarily doing is delivering the news. Entertainment, even politically charged entertainment, is great. But but what they've done is sell their, their not very entertaining entertainment on the pretense that actually it's hard news that is valuable. And when you accuse them of, of being, you know, oh, guys, you're not really doing news here, they'll say, look, we, we, we're serving the, the audience. They like this. You know, they find it enjoyable and engaging. And they'll point to Cuomo's ratings. I, I think when he left, he said something like he was the number one rated show in his hour or something like that. He pointed, he pointed to the success of his show. Um, and so it's clear why CNN liked it is they like shows that get get ratings. I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with shows that are designed primarily to draw in viewers by with with antics. That's fine. That's part of that's part of uh, that's part of the of, of the media in 2021. That's part of the media in 1790. That's what media is in a lot of ways, right? You, Shenanigans. You, like you do outrageous stuff, and people, you know, and say outrageous things about politics, about culture, about other people, um, and you know, to, like that's all okay. But you can't then pretend that what you're doing is serious hard news, and that to me is the real problem here, which gets to sort of the like the deep journalistic issue, which is that it's. It's one thing to help your brother who is in a political, you know, who is in high office. It's one thing to funnel information even. But you can't do that while saying I'm providing news to people. And you can't do that without very, very, very clearly disclosing exactly what you are doing. Not just saying, hey, this guy's my brother. No, you've got to say, look, the campaign like called me and asked me for dirt. And I called my buddies and I said, hey, uh, can I can do you guys any, do you guys have any dirt that I can feed my brother in the governor's office or his media con- like handlers? And you have to say that stuff. And if you can be transparent and disclose it and keep your audience, then great. But the thing you can't and shouldn't do and the thing that uh, media organizations, whether they are in the entertainment business or the news business or somewhere in in between on that spectrum, is pretend that they are journalistically ethical, uh, pretend that they are simply purveyors of of meaningful news, and then 
actually just deliver like uh, 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 entertainment that is also in this case, extremely corrupt and contributed to covering up a governor who's actually like who lied about the fact that he that a lot more people were dying in his state than actually, you know, than he was saying. Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, this is this is this is part of the thing that I think drives me the craziest is that like this is very much a getting Al Capone for tax fraud sort of thing where like uh, the 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 actual the actual journalistic malfeasance, you know, uh, we all saw play out in real time. Like we all we all saw we all saw play out in real time on TV and and they were celebrated for it. They were celebrated on Twitter and elsewhere. And people were like, oh, look at this cute, fun thing that they're doing. This is so cool. And it it, it drove me crazy at the time. And it drives me a little bit crazy right now that, you know, this is this is kind of what ends up bringing bringing that whole uh, group of people down. So, so I do think this is really bad. But I actually have a question for both of you. Do you think that there is a version of this? That would have been okay. Let's say Andrew Cuomo as governor oh, was just kind of a crappy governor, and Chris was clear about what what he was doing. You know, like oh, I talk, sure I talk to the media handlers, I talk to his staff behind. Right, they ask me questions, I give them answers, I use my sources. Right, like if he said that that was happening, just on the, no, in the same way, no, I don't. In the same way it, that journalists, okay? so, so here's the thing that we all know is that journalists become friendly with their sources have to have them over for dinner, go to dinners at their house, right? Like it's, and often there is like a both, they are both friendly and distanced at the same time, but they become personally acquainted with people who they write about and people who they interview and people whose, you know, whose job, uh, who, who they cover for a living. And this seems to me like just like, there's a version of this that is not quite as bad, right? You don't have Andrew Cuomo lying about death stats and you don't have Chris Cuomo lying about feeding information to the Cuomo campaign. But there's a version of this that's merely just a little bit worse than a lot of coverage that we accept as as basically normal and part of doing business. I'm not saying I totally like I I actually agree with this, but I'm saying like if you wanted to defend it along like the lines of like this isn't as bad as it seems or this is not as abnormal as it seems. I think that's the direction you'd have to go. Chris, okay. do, you, do you think you can defend it that way? Well, let me say and I'm kind of appalled at, at the ethics I'm, I'm hearing here because as a journalist, I don't allow myself to have friends, whether, <laughs> yeah, friends whether they are sources or not. Verboten. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe I can envision a scenario like that, but there is no universe in which if I were Chris Cuomo's boss, I would have allowed him to interview his brother on a regular basis. Like, like maybe once, maybe like some special that was very clearly advertised as these are two brothers and we're having a, something that is not, you know, quite yeah. our normal news situation. If they, but if they wanted to have a podcast together, fine. Sure. You know, they wanted to, you know, uh, go on tour together to uh, do a Cuomo Brothers uh, variety show. Fine. But like the the idea that he was on CNN on a news show regularly interviewing his brother is just like, I like, again, a uh, very red line that is being crossed for me. I don't know. I mean, I just think you have to be totally obsessive about transparency with your readers, viewers, listeners, whoever it is that's consuming this stuff. There's a reason that whenever we've done segments about Jeff Bezos, we all go through our disclosures about like what we our relationship with The Washington Post, because even though like it's honestly we're not very connected to like the Bezos empire, but we all have a relationship with a with a with a company he owns. And like people need to know that up front. Full disclosure, I should say Sonny and Amazon. I, I have an Amazon tattoo on my uh, right buttock, just FYI. All right, uh, so is it a controversy or a controversy that Chris Cuomo has finally been let go from CNN, Peter? It's a controversy that it took so long. 
Chris. Agree 100%. I mean, and and long before any of the recent disclosures, I mean, it was it was a controversy over a year ago. Controversy this whole time. Insane. Uh, st- I'm bubbling with rage that it's that it was allowed to go on for so long, but I'm glad it's, uh, that era has come to a close. Uh, if you enjoy this show, and who doesn't, it's great. Please head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a special bonus episode on The Harder They Fall, a revisionist western from Netflix that plays like a exploitation spaghetti western. Uh, speaking of revisionist westerns from Netflix... On to the main event. The Power of the Dog, Jane Campion's examination of masculinity, toxic and otherwise. In uh, the not-too-old West, really, it's set in 1925, Montana. Um, The Power of the Dog is the story of the Burbank brothers, Phil, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and George, played by Jesse Plemons, uh, and Rose, uh, the woman George marries, who is uh, played by Kirsten Dunst, as well as her effeminate son, Peter, who is played by Cody Smith McPhee. Uh, Phil is a big, blustering cowboy type. He's got the dirt on him. He's got the smells of the tree. Trail, um, as did his mentor, Bronco Henry. Uh, Phil's humor is cutting and cruel. He mocks his brother as fatso while they ride along, and he sneers at Peter for the way he walks, the way he holds a towel while serving dinner uh, to Phil and his cowpoke friends, and the way he makes paper flowers as decorations for the table. Um, the first hour of The Power of the Dog plays out very much like one might expect an indie film about res- repressed homosexuality amongst cowboys in the 19s, uh, 1920s would, would play out, right? People are very mean to Peter, who just wants to read his books and diagram uh, his animal carcasses and do the hula hoop and and wear clean white shoes rather than the dirty and dusty boots that everyone around him is wearing. Uh, Phil is so agitated about Peter's homosexuality. In fact, that he, he, as a repressed gay man himself, uh, feels anger and loathing, self-loathing. He just, he wants to, again, this is like textbook 101 stuff. There's nothing really particularly surprising here. But then things shift a little bit. Phil takes Peter under his wing. Uh, He teaches him how to ride. He toughens him up a little bit. He tries to get him to understand the cruelty of this world and how to act against it. Uh, Hell, Phil even starts to make Peter a lariat for his use on the trail. And the way that Peter pays him back for this kindness, I won't spoil, uh, (laughs) but it's not what I was expecting. We can talk spoilers in in a minute or two here. I think the end of this film is actually kind of very, very interesting and more or less a subversion of the typical subversion of the Western genre that we see in films of this sort. Um, But let's talk about some of the actual filmmaking first. Yes, it has the gorgeous vistas. The American West does a lot of work all on its own in movies like this. Uh, But I actually prefer a lot of the interior work, the interior uh, household work in this movie. There's this very, very good, very interesting moment about midway through when Rose, having moved into Phil and George's home and having been gifted a grand piano, was practicing some little show tune. Um, She's stumbling over it. Her fingers are out of practice. She used to play in the local silent movie theater, but doesn't anymore and and can't quite get the tune down. Uh, Phil hears her and starts playing the same tune on his banjo on a landing on top of the steps. We cut back and forth between the two of them. Rose is faltering. Phil is working smoothly and kind of sneeringly. And their duel takes on an air that is, frankly, menacing. Uh, It is a wonderful and lyrical bit of filmmaking uh, with an absolutely acid point uh, that he is breaking her down bit by bit until she crawls into the bottle. Um, We haven't even talked about Johnny Greenwood's score yet, which is one of my favorite things about the movie. Uh, But I'll let the sound guy, Peter, uh, handle that. Uh, Did you like the score as much as I did? I loved it. I love Johnny Greenwood. Um, I, uh, his scores. I mean, he's you know worked with P.T. Anderson. Uh, he's done a bunch of film work. Uh, he has brought out some of the cinematic sonic vibes of Radiohead um, and made them more um, more interestingly orchestral in many cases, right? Um, and I, I think he's one of the most interesting people working in uh, film scores today, along actually with Trent Reznor, who does great film, who's like, you know, uh, was this icon of angsty goth rock in the 1990s. I love Nine Inch Nails, as many people, uh, listeners may know, but like then became 
also the guy who scores Pixar movies uh, and Ken Burns films. And he like he grew up and became an adult. And Johnny Greenwood has you know, sort of advanced along similar uh, uh, lines, right, from the kind of early, like, uh, you know, nerd rock of, of Radiohead uh, to be to somebody who is uh, who makes great scores that aren't just sort of interestingly textural and tonal, but also are, are just like super spacious to listen to, right? Like, and especially if you've got a good surround sound system, they seem to create, uh, they're almost like sets, right? So like people will talk about the score or the the set being a character. No, in this case, his scores are like places. They're like zones that you inhabit. And that works really well in a film like this, which is very much a place-driven film that is, as you said, you know, has these incredible exteriors, but also these very, very exquisite, um, careful interiors as well. Chris, you were not a fan of this movie. You, uh, I don't think you you seem to to not love it. I, or am I, I was I, I misreading some of your emails? No, no, I, I appreciated the movie. I liked it fine. It did not it did not hit me where I live. Um, and there are a couple things I'd like to say. The, the first is, I really don't think this is a western in any meaningful way. It is set in Montana, which is in the West, but it's set in 1925, so we're definitely past the Wild West era. And it really is just a domestic melodrama. I mean, yes, there are horses in it. And yes, Benedict Cumberbatch wears spurs. But but a Western is about open country. A Western is about lawlessness. And, and none of those elements are present in this film at all. There's no question of lawlessness. They live in a gargantuan mansion, you know, set at the base of these mountains. But there's never any fear of bandits or an Indian raid or anything like that. Um, and, you know, and, and this is true even, I would add, of, of neo-Westerns. Even, you know, if you look at something like Hell or High Water from a few years ago, set in West Texas in the present day, but it's set in West Texas because it is a lawless zone, or at least that's the way it defines it. I mean, this, this film literally could have been set in Pennsylvania, or it could have been set in a mansion, frankly, in London. And I say London specifically because the film that this movie reminded me most of, um, although I don't think it was as good, is A Phantom Thread. Um, you have a sort of similar story of an incredibly overbearing man uh, who needs to be taken down, and the means by which they are both taken down are, are similar. Um, but again, it, it's whether or not it's a Western does not speak to whether or not it's a good movie. I, I think it's a good movie. I, I really, I think my problem is Benedict Cumberbatch never quite worked for me, and I'm a huge Benedict Cumberbatch fan. But just Why physically, physically, he didn't quite work for me. And I felt like there are times when you feel like a movie is trying to make up for something with like dialogue. And I felt like all the times they talked about how dirty Benedict Cumberbatch was and how he refused to wash. We're all trying to turn him into a character that he just, you know, that when he walked on screen, he wasn't. So isn't isn't the the Cumberbatch uh, casting designed to actually sort of not like it's it's supposed to not fit because he is he is a playing the part of a person who is playing a part. Right. And he's he is somebody who is not the dirty, swaggering uh, alpha that he pretends to be in many ways. He's, in fact, a closeted gay man who went to Yale and like uh, or or potentially classics. Right, but he's surrounded like by he's thing. surrounded by cowboys who would see through that fraud if it were a fraud. But the point of the movie is it's both sort of a fraud and sort of not, right? He both has has he kind of has inhabited that that persona 
and also not fully left behind these other parts of him that he is declining what? to share with the men who look up to him let's, for his very traditionalized masculine uh, performance. Let's, let's let's drill down on this for a second because what's the Pope hat rule, the rule of fucking goats? If you if you fuck a goat ironically, you're still fucking a goat. <laughs> um, and that that is I, I I mean there there's a there's there's some question of that in the in the in Phil's kind of persona here. I mean if he if he is still like a traditionally aggressive masculine Man, isn't he just isn't is he really putting on a, a a show here, or is is it is it something else? Well, this campaign is always super interested in gender roles and and the performance of gender roles, and also the way that performance re- reflects against social expectations of the performance, right? And so her, that's why that's part of what her, makes her movies super interesting is that she's doing all of those things at once. It's not just like, here's gender roles. It's also, here's how people on the outside see them, and then here's how people on the inside uh, respond to cultural pressure about those gender roles and change what they are doing um, because of how people perceive their display. They're chosen in many cases, although in some cases uh, just sort of uh, not, a display of of gender. And I I think that this movie, I'd like to me, that that's what makes this, makes this movie so interesting is that it seems so obviously a companion piece to the piano and um and to a lesser extent in the cut, in that it is about how these roles are much more complicated and much less and 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 much more sort of on they're all on a spectrum rather than they are all clear and uh and, and simply one thing or another, right? Um well. And also, then it's about how those gender dynamics become used to to take power over other people in ways that are complex. And sometimes people want to have power taken over them, um, and sometimes people don't. Uh, and sometimes people don't know what they want and respond accordingly. So, so Peter, I, I would, I guess, I would take issue a little bit. Um, and as the putative liberal here, I'm, I'm. It's odd that I'm the one seizing on this. I didn't think the gender roles were all that complex, um, in part because I thought the Benedict Cumberbatch character was a very, very, very common sort of longstanding liberal meme, which is that the worst homophobes are repressed homosexuals. Um, and I kind of hate this meme because I don't think it's statistically true. I'm sure that it is true of, of some small number of extreme homophobes, but most homophobes are just homophobes. They're heterosexual homophobes. And the reason that this that this storyline has been so popular, you go back to American Beauty, for example, uh, has been so popular with liberal audiences, is it's a way of saying, not only are you a bigot, you're also a liar and a hypocrite. And, you know, sometimes it's enough to just say, you're a bigot, you're a homophobe, that's it. And I don't need to explain that you're a homophobe because you're really gay and are trying to repress it. Yeah, I guess I didn't see this as just a straightforward presentation of that stereotype. I, to me, well, see, this I, seemed I, like something where she was saying that that Cumberbatch's character uh, was is somebody who is doing the thing that he feel like that he feels should be authentic to him, and it's not just a way of uh, expressing disdain for the thing he actually is. It's also him trying to be somebody he believes he needs to be in the moments in order to preserve something that he thinks 
that he genuinely thinks is valuable, which is this sort of old way of being a cowboy, right? And and so the, the time frame here is very important in that it's the 1920s and not the 1890s. And he is he is somebody, he is like, there's this weird, I mean, there, there's this kind of essential conservatism to his character in that he is trying to preserve the way of the past by performing the the values right in in the the basically by being a character who expresses those values uh to the other people who he thinks need to have those values transmitted to them and it's not just a kind of way of covering up for his own insecurity it's something that he believes needs to be done in order to make sure that the old ways get passed along appropriately yeah, I want to. I, my main pushback on this is I. I, I don't think I. Ex- so when I started watching the movie, I expected it to be that sort of kind of stereotypical. Oh, look, here's the here's the repressed homosexual who is you know being cruel to the uh, to the to the young gay man. Of course, this is a you know, I, and I don't think it was that exactly for some of the reasons that Peter states, but also because I like. It's it's a very so I'm going to talk about the ending here. So spoilers if you're planning on if you're if you're planning on watching this movie uh, and you don't want to hear about the ending, sign off now and I'll uh, and I will I will forgive you for for leaving me. But but the so what's what's interesting about the end of this movie is that it takes a real shift in the last thirty minutes or so um, to the point where again Phil Phil is helping Peter. Uh, he is he is becoming a sort of mentor to him. Um, he is trying to get him out of the grips of his, you know, uh, his, his mother who is failing him on any number of levels. And uh, he is repaid for this with murder. Uh, the Cody Smith McPhee's character kills him um, uh, by poisoning via anthrax. He, he kills him with anthrax. So what what is again, what is what is very interesting about me or about about me about this movie is if you look at it uh, from the uh, from from if you look at the whole thing, you have a character who is almost I, I this is what I was thinking as the movie was ending. I was like, you know what who he reminds me of? He reminds me of Anthony Perkins in Psycho. The whole thing feels like a psycho Smith prologue McPhee, almost. Smith, yeah, Smith and, McPhee, and you're not right. the only critic, by the way, to make that comparison, I believe. <laughs> Uh, Manola Dargis uh, in the New York Times See, made a, a similar comparison. Look at that. <laughs> look at that. But I mean, he's he's like, he's very thin and bird-like. He's very awkward and precise in his movements. It, early in the film, he mutilates a rabbit, like, and we could talk about, you know, science, whatever, but like, he's, he's like, he, he, he bears a lot of the hallmarks of a murderer from the movies. And then he ends up killing somebody. And it's, and it's, again, this is, this is, this is a subversion of the whole, you know, uh, the the idea that he is just a victim being bullied. Um, there's something a little bit darker underneath underneath his his persona as well, which I found again I found interesting. It's it's not it is not the movie I expected it to be, and it did not play out the way I expected it to. So there's a I, I, I guess the the film seems to be at least raising the question of whether Phil the Benedict Cumberbatch character is actually the villain that that first hour sort of suggests to us, is he just that liberal, you know, stereotype? And I think that last half hour, I, I, I would not go so far as to say that it is a definitively about how we have misjudged him, but it allows for that possibility. And it is a movie that is very subtle and very clever in the way that it simply, that like, if, I think Sonny's reading is at least a potentially correct one here. And that it seems to be saying, like there's a reading here in which the kid who kills the mentor who tries to be nice to him is actually the villain, and we picked the wrong one. 
And the movie is in some ways about how our sympathies can be betrayed by these cultural understandings of gender and the performance thereof. See, I, I think that reading would work a lot better if if the Kristen Dunst character didn't exist. I mean, the movie is very, very explicit that Cody Smith McPhee kills Benedict Cumberbatch's character to save his mother because his mother is literally being driven insane and to a level of alcoholism that will kill her. And and that is quite explicitly the reason that he kills him. He does not. Yeah. Well, there, there, that is, that is, that is certainly part of it for sure. But it's also, I mean, the, 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 again, the, the opening lines of the film are Smith, Smith, uh, uh, Cody Smith McPhee's character saying something along the lines of, uh, I did it protect to protect my mother. Any boy should protect his, but, 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 but again, that's a very strong echo of psycho. Yeah. I mean, it like you, you, it's hard That's to hear fair. that line and not think Anthony Perkins in Psycho. I mean, I, part of me really thinks that this is a movie about how much we are willing to excuse the behavior of people who we sympathize with uh, when they do things to people we don't already sympathize with. I mean, the whole the whole film is structured to make Phil an irredeemable, like an irredeemable bad person, like from from insulting the help to slapping the horse on the nose, like to to all sorts of like there's nothing about him that is good and positive until that last 45 minutes or so. And then we we see kind of what his his deal has been and we see how he tries to help uh, the the young boy. And like, I, I, I just think it's Again, I think I think Jane Campion is doing something more interesting than I expected her to be doing after that first hour of the film. I agree that it's more complex, and I would say that the film that it reminds me of in a lot of ways is Taxi Driver, um, just in the sense that Taxi Driver is a little more internal because you get the, the monologue, but in the sense that it has this this non-judgmental distance from someone who is hard to fathom psychologically, and yet seems to add up to a to a quite complete character who is capable of potentially uh, uh, of acts that can be judged multiple ways, right? Either as quite good, right? Oh, this person needed saving or as quite awful, obviously terrible or many ways in between, right? Like uh, there's people who- How dare you besmirch, how dare you besmirch Travis Bickle, <laughs> the the savior. Of, I would never uh, besmirch Travis <laughs> Bickle because Taxi Driver is my favorite movie of all time. But that's the interesting thing about that movie is that it allows you. It allows people to cast their own to like judge Bickle for themselves in a way that is quite unusual. It is not a movie that casts judgment, but also not a movie that refrains from like showing you moral acts. Right? It's not one that it's sort of just. Like like studiously neutral, and that's its judgments. No, it's it says there are multiple ways to look at people with these unusual and perhaps perhaps deranged psyches, and this movie does something similar, I think, with both of the kind of two main male characters who end up circling each other throughout much of the film. Uh, all right, Phantom so Thread meets meets Taxi Driver. There's a there's a tagline. <laughs> uh, well, so a what movie do we think that about... this podcast would love. <laughs> yeah, I mean that would be that would be a, a very very popular one. Uh, so what do we think? Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on the power of the dog, Peter? Big thumbs up, Chris. Modest thumbs up. Uh, I give it a thumbs up. Again, more interesting than I thought it would be, which is always a big plus for me. I have a I have a set expectation of a film. If it exceed if it exceeds that, it's a success. So. 
Just don't disappoint me, filmmakers. Uh, uh, before we sign off, I would very briefly uh, like to pay my respects to the Washington Post's uh, opinion editor, Fred Hyatt, uh, who unexpectedly died Monday morning at the age of 66. Um, uh, if Alyssa were here, she would, I'm sure, have many beautiful and, and powerful things to say about him. She interacted with him on a daily basis, uh, and and uh, from all accounts, he was a great guy. I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say, you know, Fred and I were close friends. We interacted sometimes. Uh, professionally and and at, at office parties and that sort of thing. Uh, but I will say uh, that he was a very good and very smart captain of that section of the Washington Post, um, and not just because he signed off on my hiring as a contributing columnist. Uh, he was a stalwart champion of freedom at home and abroad. Um, I'd occasionally hear a word of praise from him after hitting on the ways in which our entertainment industries, from Hollywood uh, to the hardwood of the NBA, were kowtowing to China. Uh, and I, I was always very glad that he gave me space to uh, kind of rant on that sort of thing. It's, a, it's an important topic. Somebody needs to do it. Um, again, he was also, just by all accounts, an incredibly decent guy, helpful, friendly, uh, always willing to go to the mats to defend his writers from being unfairly assailed. Uh, he will be missed. R.I.P. Fred. Um, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, uh, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on The Harder They Fall. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. Uh, if you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that this is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 